Hi, I'm Ben Miller, a writer, researcher, and member of the board of the Gay Museum in Berlin. And I'm Hugh Lemmy, a writer and author. And this is the second episode of Season 2 of Bad Gays, a podcast about evil and complicated gay men in history. We ask why don't we spend as much time thinking about our villains as we do our heroes. And what makes a villain anyway? Is it someone that we think is terrible, or someone who's been unfairly tarnished by history? Last week we talked about a Grecian conqueror who rode across the world of his boyfriend. Who are we talking about this week, Ben? Today we're going to explore the short and bloody life of Andrew Cunanan, a black hole of gay narcissism. Black holes are attractors. We risk being sucked in. Andrew Cunanan answers the following question. What happens when evil twink energy flames out? When the transition to bitter old queen, a role that requires a bit of money or some social position, doesn't work? What happens to those people? Anyone who's ever been to a gay bar has met one of these delusional queens, the ones who have a rotating series of sugar daddies, a new name every few months, a new fake job, like they're auditioning for the role of the kind of men who run their lives. Most of them make it to some point of social position, and the cycle of gay life continues. But some of them start pushing 30 and realize that nothing is coming their way. Everything's beginning to fall apart, to spin out of control. Even those ones, most of them, find somewhere to land. Not Andrew Cunanan. Andrew Cunanan is the dark heart of evil twink energy consuming itself, and evil twink energy can't consume itself without consuming a few others too. Andrew Cunanan killed Jeffrey Trail, David Madsen, Lee Miglin, William Reese, and in South Beach, a guy named Johnny Versace. He's always just remembered as the guy who killed Versace, though, because the case became sensational. It had everything the media loves. Kept boys, S&M, delusional parents, a dead fashion designer, weeping celebrities, and the vague intimation of homosexuality as itself a form of bloody death that was still hanging over from the AIDS epidemic. Andrew Cunanan committed his crimes one year after the introduction of the combination antiretrovirals that made HIV a treatable disease. In 1995, two years before Cunanan became famous, the movie Showgirls was released. It's a Paul Verhoeven film about dancer hookers clawing their way up in Vegas. One of them buys a dress at a fancy store at the mall for the first time, and when her friends compliment her, she says, Thanks, it's a Versace. That dress's designer, Johnny Versace, was born in the city of Reggio Calabria, Italy, in 1946 to a working-class family. After opening his Milan boutique in 1978, Versace quickly became a sensation on the international fashion scene. His designs used vivid colors, prints, and often shockingly sexy cuts, which were a contrast to uh, the kind of muted colors and sort of simple tastes of, of late 70s, especially Italian fashion. He was once quoted as saying, I don't believe in good taste. And his uh, great rival at the time in kind of early 80s Italian fashion was uh, Giorgio Armani, and the saying always went that Armani dresses the wife and Versace dresses the mistress. Versace was also one of the pioneers of the combination of the worlds of fashion and celebrity. Uh, Versace was one of the first people who employed celebrities in high fashion marketing campaigns, sat them in the front of his shows instead of big clients, um, and also was at the front of the trend of turning the models themselves into uh, their own form of celebrities. He was one of the pioneers of the supermodel vogue of the 1990s. Andrew Cunanan was born in 1961 in San Diego, California. His mother, Mary Ann, had been born to Sicilian immigrants. She was so Sicilian that later, after Cunanan became infamous, she would do the malocchio at reporters. 
His father, Peter Cunanan, was a stockbroker and white-collar criminal who became known as the Filipino Errol Flynn, some sort of a dashingly handsome man. Andrew had an emotionally unstable childhood and an upbringing. Um, his mother doted on him and was herself always a bit of a fantasist. Andrew grew up in a town called Bonita, California, which is uh, part of the greater San Diego area, and the location of the town itself says a lot about uh, the class in which he was born and also the class aspirations of his parents. The town is located in San Diego between the working class and immigrant-heavy district of Chula Vista and the very high-end neighborhood of Rancho del Rey, and all of this is only about 10 miles north of the Mexican border. So kind of on the edges of this very kind of wealthy and luxurious lifestyle, but then with this kind of uh, imagined foreign danger always very close by. He grew up in a very religious household. His parents were both devout Catholics, and his father gave him an etiquette book when he was a young child and made him learn it from back to front. His father also dressed him in suits and was a stockbroker whose business was just as Andrew entered elementary school beginning to fail and falter. At school, Andrew began to set himself apart from his classmates by what he wore and how he acted. He wore argyle vests and penny loafers, and would often pretend to be wealthier than he was. All of this was later looked back on after the murder of Versace. There were stories of him being a childhood genius, of him torturing animals, of him being a pathological liar. But what is the desire to be somebody other than being a pathological liar? And with that question, I want to introduce... Um, for Andrew, the dialogue between the two books. So there were two books that have been published about Andrew Cunanan, and they were both published in 1999, capitalizing on this flurry of media attention and this sensational serial killer who had led to the death of this celebrity. Maureen Orth's book, Vulgar Favors, is a traditional journalistic account. She's a Vanity Fair journalist with a lot of experience reporting on this kind of um, high society peccadilloes and sensational glamorous crimes. Um, she began reporting the story for Vanity Fair just sort of as a human interest piece when there was this uh, serial killer killing people across the country before Versace died, and then after Versace died, it turns out that by doing this reporting, she had hit the goddamn mother load if you're a fashion and celebrity reporter, and she turned it into this book. Um, the book is based on a lot of interviews, a lot of research, uh, but there's something about the way that it handles Cunanan's homosexuality that I think uh, I find very odd. Uh, a good way to get into it is to start with the epigraph to the book, which is from the Richard Strauss opera Capriccio. Um, she quotes from the libretto of that opera, Just look at the vulgar favors that give the crowds of the capital such delight. You despise these lewd things, and yet you suffer them. So she's setting up this gay world from which Cunanan came as being lewd and vulgar and very separate from the glamorous and tasteful life of the rich and famous who usually grace Vanity Fair's pages, people like Johnny Versace and Donald Trump and Jeffrey Epstein. Um, in an updated article for Vanity Fair last year, she wrote about reporting the story on the occasion of the uh, Ryan Murphy miniseries about the death of Versace, quote, Unraveling Cunanan's double, triple life with the help of dozens of his friends and associates, who led me through his haunts in the Hillcrest area of San Diego, then and now a gay enclave, was fascinating. My first night in San Diego, for example, started at a male wet t-shirt and below contest and ended at a drag show. So note the level of surprise there. Oh my goodness, a gay enclave, a male wet t-shirt contest, dicks. Um, for Orth, I don't think it's too much of a stress to say. 
uh, Funanon's gayness is at the heart of what made him kill. He was this sort of twisted, sick queen. The Gary Indiana book, Three Month Fever, on the other hand, which is a fever dream of an associative nightmare of a nonfiction-ish novel, begins with this epigraph, a poem by Dory Previn. Last night I found obscenities scrawled across my wall. I swear I can't repeat the filthy words that I recall. And then the most immoral, damned, insulting thing of all, as I read each line I noticed, his handwriting was identical with mine. So in this vision, we are Andrew, Andrew is us, and that's the point. For Gary, Indiana, um, Andrew Cunanan is a gay version of a pure expression of the poisonous narcissism of American celebrity culture, the kind of culture in which Maureen Orth and Vanity Fair are very much implicated. It's a subtle difference, but it's an important one. Indiana is describing what a culture does to a certain kind of person from the inside. Orth is trying to pathologize us from above. So when it was time for him to go to high school in 1981, Andrew was accepted to Bishop's, a fancy prep school in La Jolla, which is the richest part of San Diego. Tuition at Bishop's was the equivalent of 17000 U.S. a year today, and only one-sixth of that would ever come back in financial aid. So his parents were sacrificing a lot to send him to this fancy school. He told his uh, friends there uh, that he came from a fabulously wealthy family and there was this sort of money hovering somewhere offshore and the connections had finally come through just in time to pay the bills. And he told his friends from his old uh, sort of local school that as well. He also never told his friends at Bishop that he was part Filipino. Bishop's is in a cluster of old Spanish mission-style buildings on a hillside in La Jolla, La Jolla is another neighborhood of San Diego, unlike the other two that we mentioned earlier. It's north of the city, and it sticks out into the Pacific Ocean on three sides. This is a neighborhood where Jews were kept out by covenant until the 1970s, and where black people were only allowed as domestic servants until the 1950s, and still, if you go to La Jolla, you will see very few black people. Andrew begins to realize that he's gay under the shadow of the oncoming AIDS epidemic. It was the early 1980s. Ronald Reagan is in the White House, and he's at a high school that has a Republicans Against Welfare Club, and families who, uh, classmates rather, with families who go to debutante balls and have fancy holidays in Europe. Who establishes a Republicans Against Welfare Club at high school? What are you doing with your life? The kind of people who grow up in La Jolla, to quote uh, Edie Beale from Grey Gardens, it's a mean, nasty Republican town. You can get arrested there for wearing red shoes on a Thursday. <laughs> um, at the school, he was voted least likely to be forgotten. He was sur surrounded by this class of people whose wealth he had always been taught to emulate, or whose sort of style of wealth he had always been taught to emulate. And so while he was there, he often told a lot of stories about who he and his family actually were. Sometimes with his friends, he would pretend his last name was De Silva, and he came from a wealthy Sephardic Jewish family. Sometimes he pretended that he was one of the distant heirs to the Scripps fortune, and the Scripps family were newspaper publishers whose money and influence defined the La Jolla neighborhood and many of his institutions, like UC San Diego and the Scripps Institute for Research. His friends knew he was gay. He survived at high school by being sort of outrageous. His parents, he always thought, didn't. When he graduated, he wore a red leather jumpsuit to prom. Friends wrote in his yearbook, quote, You sex god you, you art stud you, and dude, take care of yourself and don't die until you're at least 25. Promise me you won't contract AIDS while I'm gone. Fucking hell. Republicans, man. 
When he graduated, he found his way to UCSD, which is also in La Jolla, the University of California, San Diego, and lived in the beachside villa of a friend from high school. He earned solid grades there and began to more regularly inhabit the persona of Andrew Da Silva, Jewish emigre with ties to Shin Bet and the Mossad. Meanwhile, his father escaped prosecution on financial crimes charges only by escaping back to the Philippines. That rich friend that uh, he was uh, living with moved to Berkeley to be with her husband. Uh, Andrew dropped out of college. He visited his father in the Philippines for a while and hated it. Um, then he moved to San Francisco, like so many uh, early 20s gay men full of piss and vinegar before him. He took a job as a temporary cl clerk. San Francisco's Castro in 1989, writes Gary Indiana in Three Month Fever, quote, looked like a hospital gift shop where so many walking dead propelled themselves from bar to bar that it really felt like a spectrally swinging ghost town. In San Francisco, Andrew just became Drew, a bar persona, always ready with a smile, a joke, a good time. You don't ask those people a lot of questions about where they're from and what they do. Indiana again, and this one is a much longer quote, but you'll see why I can't resist it. Quote, Drew swooped in again into close-up, somewhere you were drinking near closing time, leaned into you intimately, and struck up a long, heart-tweaking conversation in which the rueful vicissitudes of existence, the ironies and epiphanies of life in general, and gay life in particular, figured rather beautifully, and you were reminded that, despite the wrenching randomness of this friendship, and so many other friendships, there were people in the world who cared about and who cared about you, even if those empathies were doomed to track through empty ether like so many scrambled radio signals. In this respect, Drew was no different than a lot of bar people. Easy come, easy go. There were bars for cruising and bars for conversation, but in either kind of bar, the restless hunt for something besides conversation gave friendships an ephemeral fluidity that alcohol rendered even looser and more transient. You could know many people for years without knowing a single hard fact about their lives. A glimpse through the keyhole into their reality might be offered once or twice in a decade. The rest of what you knew was a compost of gossip and interference on whatever the person told you. End quote. Wow, he knows how to write, doesn't he? Yeah, that's why this has become, since I read it, uh, maybe my favorite book, this Gary Indiana book. So it was in San Francisco that Andrew Cunanan first encountered Johnny Versace, either at a performance of Strauss's Capriccio for which Versace had done the costumes, or afterwards at a nightclub. Um... Strauss's Capriccio is a very sort of portentous opera for them to have met at. It's written in... This the... is why you've chosen this subject, so you can get out your inner opera queen, or well, your outer opera queen. It's not very inner. Um, so Capriccio is this little confection of a piece about a fabulously wealthy countess who has a hard time deciding whether she thinks that words or music are more artistically important. And also, she's having an affair with her court composer and her court poet, and each one is trying to convince her. And then at the end, she decides that actually the unity of both is the crucial thing. And if this had been written in, you know, 1887, you might think, well, that all sounds very lovely. But it was written near the end of Strauss's life in 1942, which means that there were death camps, uh, you know, not 200 miles away from where he was sitting in his house uh, writing this, and so that kind of lends a chill, I think, to the piece itself. But it's very popular among a certain kind of gay man who love to hear a soprano of a certain age demonstrate her ability to continue floating high notes, and that's what she did in San Francisco on this evening in 1990, wearing costumes that Versace had designed. 
Um, I'll assume that that's a really cutting read that I just don't get because I don't get the uh, Hopper references. You know, um, if anyone wants to look up who was singing Capriccio in this production, they can find uh, my opinion about that uh, soprano. But um, So Maureen Orth devotes a whole chapter to this meeting in which somehow this little meeting, uh, either at the opera or at a club afterward, foretold Versace's death somehow. But as Gary Indiana writes, quote, This nugget, like so many things produced by journalism, is a bit too tiny and thinly charged for an entire person to orbit around it from 1990 to 1997. There are people so smitten with celebrity that they're driven to kill, journalists conspicuous among them, but in my version of the story, he writes, Andrew only got a little thrill. So in the early 1990s, uh, Andrew moved back to San Diego, having kind of run out of opportunities there, and got involved with uh, three of Evil Twinks' favorite pastimes, which are Sugar Daddies, S&M, and drug dealing. So first is Sugar Daddies, and it's a little bit inaccurate to say daddies. There was really only one, a guy named Norman Blatchford, who he lived with. Um, so Andrew met Norman and was paid a salary to be free at Norman's disposal at any time. Uh, at this point, he had a passport under the name Cunanan, but he had somehow gotten Andrew De Silva onto his driver's license. And finally, Andrew had the social position that he had been seeking this whole time. He had money. He could take his old friends out to fancy dinners. At this point, his backstory began to change a little bit more. Uh, he would tell people that his parents had been fabulously wealthy Filipinos who were uh, some kind of low-level functionaries or high-level functionaries in the Marcos regime, and what's interesting here is that for Andrew, clearly what mattered was proximity to power and wealth uh, rather than anything else. I mean, if you're claiming that you're related to the Marcoses and not distancing yourself yeah. from the Marcoses, that sort of says it all. Um, he lived in Norman's house in San Diego, and they traveled regularly to the Riviera, to Europe, to Hawaii. And he would keep up with the friends that he met in the San Francisco bars and the San Diego bars and write them postcards. Postcards that never fully clarified that Norman was paying for everything, or even particularly that Norman existed. Um, at this point, he started buying S&M porn and going to S&M bars, and Maureen Orth depicts this getting into S&M and crystal meth as some kind of inevitable gay pattern, where violence just twists and increases until eventually you snap and start shooting, but plenty of people get into kinky sex and even chem sex without killing anyone. And it's important to remember also that this period in the early 1990s is when uh, there was sort of maximum death among gay men in the U.S. from AIDS. So between 1991 and 1996, between 30 and 40,000 people uh, are dying of the disease, mostly at this point gay men in urban centers. Uh, after that, of course, the character of the disease and, and the populations most affected by it change very dramatically. Um, gay communities are not that large. Everyone knew people who were dying, and we certainly did. And Andrew was always too afraid ever to get an HIV test. So Norman is worth $110 million, but uh, wouldn't fly Andrew first class, and he wouldn't buy Andrew the new Mercedes convertible that he wanted. And so in 1996, Andrew issued a series of ultimatums. In order to continue in the relationship, he wanted an increased allowance, he wanted to fly first class whenever they traveled, and he wanted a place in Norman's will. And Norman was only willing to increase his allowance. And so at this point, Andrew walked, and he moved into a small studio apartment in uh, Hillcrest, which is San Diego's gay neighborhood. 
And uh, nice to know he has some principles. Yeah, you know. And it's a long, long way from Hillcrest to La Jolla in uh, geographic distance and also in uh, spiritual space and time. Now, the whole time that uh, Andrew had been sort of kept by Norman, he had been uh, on again, off again, dating this man named David Madsen by correspondence. He was also regularly picking up men in bars for S&M sessions and sex, a lot of them sailors. San Diego's a big Navy town. Um, but David was someone who he had had this kind of continual correspondent relationship with. And after Andrew left Norman, he tried to get David to either come to San Diego or to go to where David lived in Minnesota and move in with him. And at this point, uh, David kind of realized what was going on and realized he'd been being double played and broke up with him too. Now, Andrew had been dealing drugs at this point for a while, starting in San Francisco and continuing into his time in San Diego. He sold pain pills and methamphetamine in bars starting in the mid-1990s and uh, gradually began to start taking what he was selling. And so you have a situation where Andrew is pushing 30 and losing everything. He lost his source of income. He lost the man he actually liked. Uh, he began to gain weight and behave erratically, so he lost his looks. And if you lose your money and your looks, you also lose your position in the gay social world. Mm -hmm. And that world, which had seemed sort of welcoming and endlessly inviting when Andrew was 23 and skinny, began to start pushing him away. And um, in these last sort of months in San Diego, he kept spending money like it was going out of style. And eventually, by April 1997, he had maxed out all of his credit cards. He had never at any point in his life uh, managed to keep down a steady job. So in April, he threw himself a fabulous, lavish goodbye dinner, telling his friends a million stories about how he was going to go start his life over any dollar. He had these exciting personal and business opportunities in Minneapolis. Again, with none of these friends was he ever very clear what he did. There were always a lot of different stories, and he just always seemed very well-dressed and sort of passed um, he had always had sort of vague thoughts of wanting to work in art. He had started studying art history, but um, had quickly realized, first of all, that he didn't like it as much as he thought, and also that most people who end up working in art history, especially in kind of classical painting, which is his interest, um, come from that in their families, and it's very, very difficult to break in. Um, so he leaves San Diego and he went to Minneapolis where David had agreed to let him stay with him for a while. And in Minneapolis, he also had this other friend, a guy named Jeff Trail. Neither of them particularly wanted him there, this obviously unwell and no longer particularly fun man. And they thought that maybe they could help him clean out. Andrew's plan was to partner up with David if David would take him back. And if David wouldn't take him back, well, Jeff was there too as another option. They both shared the look that Andrew liked, uh, muscular, blonde, preppy. Andrew was an evil twink who liked other evil twinks. Andrew brought David a gold Cartier watch, bought on credit as a thank you gift. Uh, David was living his Will and Grace style uh, lifestyle in a nice loft in downtown Minneapolis in this very sort of stylish building. We can see the 90s sitcom now. On April 27, 1997, uh, Andrew invited Jeff over to David's loft while David was out of the house walking the dog. Andrew felt somewhat cornered. These two men had been his only escape route. Maybe Jeff rejected him, maybe Jeff rejected an offer to sell drugs with him, and maybe it was unprovoked, but at some point between 9.42 and 9.55 p.m. on that evening, Andrew smashed Jeff's head in 27 times with a hammer. 
He rolled Jeff up in an oriental rug and stuck him behind the sofa. David returned at 9.55 from walking the dog and was apparently paralyzed with fear. When David threatened to call the police, Andrew tied David up with duct tape. For a week, Andrew and David stayed in the apartment with the rotting corpse. Uh, No one quite knows what happened because neither one of them lived to tell the tale. Um, They did take the dog out for walks together. So there's this question of David's complicity or participation, but also David is like with a madman and knows what you would do in that kind of situation. Um, A week later, uh, with the corpse starting to smell to the point that Andrew was worried the neighbors would uh, figure something out, uh, they fled the building, and drove north on Highway 35. And in a city called Rush City, Minnesota, Andrew kicked David out of the car and shot him several times in the back as he ran away. On the next day, May 4th, Andrew arrived in Chicago. Lee Miglin was a prominent real estate developer and was home alone for the weekend. His wife Marilyn was in Canada doing a segment on the Home Shopping Network where she sold her own branded perfume and cosmetics. It's possible that Lee Miglin was closeted and invited Andrew over for a sexual encounter, either paid or not. It's possible that it was supposed to be an SM encounter. Andrew had been itinerantly working as an SM dom. Um, In any case, Andrew bound and gagged Lee, tortured him with a saw and screwdriver, broke his ribs, beat him, and stabbed him with a gardener's saw. Um, When this murder and the two before were both connected to Andrew, which didn't take very long, Andrew suddenly became one of the most famous fugitives in America. He was on the FBI Top Ten Most Wanted list. He was driving cross-country in Lee Miglin's stolen Lexus, a car that could be tracked. So in Pennsylvania, in a town called Pennsville, he carjacked and murdered a groundskeeper named William Reese, stole and drove away in his red pickup truck, and drove the car truck down the Atlantic coast to Miami Beach. Um, On May 12th, Maureen Orth uh, Orth notes, three magazine articles that Andrew might have been interested in hit the newsstands. Uh, Time and Newsweek featured him as the suspect in four murders. Um, He was referred to as a party boy and a gay socialite. Um, There was another article, though, in Vanity Fair, which Andrew was known to read every month. And the article was by the fashion journalist Kathy Harin, and included pictures of a Versace family picnic at the gay beach across the street from Versace's mansion in South Beach. And the staff had wheeled all the food over in carts. Um, Orth makes a big deal out of this as she tries to construct this narrative in which Versace was this kind of uh, bete noir for Andrew, or this kind of symbol of everything Andrew didn't have. And I have a slightly different thesis that I'll uh, reveal at the end. Um... To speak a little bit more about Versace at this moment, um, his clothes were inspired by antiquity and sadomasochism, and he said that the woman who inspired him most was the streetwalker. Um, He worshipped wealth and fame and art and coveted status in the same ways that Andrew did. Uh, He sold expensive and flashy clothes, um, and they offered security in some way to uh, people like that character in Showgirls who... You know, yeah. suddenly able to buy this fancy thing. And not only is it fancy, but it looks really fancy. In that kind of 80s, everything is supposed to look really fancy way. So Andrew shows up in Miami Beach, but <clears throat> far from the glamorous gay life of South Beach, he found himself a cheap hotel room at a place called the Normandy Plaza, which was favored by retirees and aging vacationers. Uh, he hid in plain sight and watched himself on the news. Was he a serial killer? 
he started visiting the gay bars and parties, as he did, as you do when you're in a new town, and heard gossip about these fabulous parties at Versace's house. Parties with Madonna and George Michael and Elton John. Late-night orgies with boys sourced from the beach and from cafes and bars by various procurers who worked for Versace and his boyfriend, Antonio D'Amico. Um, and the South Beach culture at this point was a very kind of gym, beach, party, repeat kind of gay life. Um, it was a very intense nightlife. It was a nightlife that was really defined by the body um, and the body beautiful in this moment where um, in the sort of ending years of the uh, AIDS epidemic uh, or the years when the AIDS epidemic is beginning to turn from kind of unsurvivable holocaust into this kind of suspended strange thing that it's become um, this vision of these kind of endlessly available healthy bodies become incredibly dominant in a certain kind of gay life or gay discourse because for obvious reasons, if you've just watched all of your friends die, or if you've just watched one generation above you, like, slowly waste and die, um, the idea that you and your friends can be beautiful and healthy-looking um, has this, I think, huge amount of currency. Um, Maureen Orth, talking about this scene, ends up sort of blaming gay men for their own situation. Like, at one point she's talking about the white party, which is kind of a circuit party nightmare that I would never go to, um, but it is an AIDS benefit. And she says, well, it was an AIDS benefit, but it's just another place where gay men can perpetuate, quote, the behavior um, that get, got them the disease in the first place, um, which, you know, is kind of uh, blaming people for their own... Yeah, just fuck off. ...horrible deaths, right? Um, I mean, it is a very well-researched book, and all of these things appear kind of in the background. You have to kind of read this in, but I think it's interesting to point them out in terms of thinking about the ways in which this story has been told and the kind of story that we want to avoid telling on this show, even though we are talking about kind of a twisted gay killer. And how at the time, and until relatively recently, so the book was published in 99, right? Mm-hmm. So 20 years ago, in the past 20 years, that not only was that not an unproblematic thing to say but it was just the way that people were thinking like that straight people or people unaffected were thinking about the situation absolutely so on july 15th of that year andrew kinnaman drove reese's stolen pickup to a garage in south beach and stood outside versace's house and when versace returned from picking up his morning mail andrew shot him twice on the stairs and ran away the police found the car they didn't find Andrew. Andrew became even more famous. Celebrities began pretending that Andrew had him on his kill list. That became the fashionable thing for a while. Versace was remembered as a great artist, as a sort of benefactor of taste and style, rather than as a shrewd businessman who sold overpriced luxury clothing. Andrew escaped to a boarded-up houseboat on Ocean Drive in Miami. Versace's will left his partner, Antonio D'Amico, with a lifelong pension of the equivalent of 25,000 euros a month, and the right to live in any of Versace's homes in Italy and the United States, but due to the Versace family's hatred of him, he only obtained a fraction of these allowances. So like so many gay men who died during the 1990s, yeah. he lost sort of the right to uh, what he was in some sense owed, although I don't think anyone is owed 25,000 euros a month. So the thesis of the story is not just that inside every delusional twink is a nuclear warhead waiting to go off, but that the stuff of that eventual explosion is already all over everything. Johnny Versace was no less delusional than Andrew Kinnanen. He wasn't much less cruel. He cared about money no less. 
cared about status no less. He just had it, and Andrew didn't. And Andrew wanted it, and so did Johnny. Two gay narcissists sitting in a tree. Gary Indiana writes, quote, Many of American society's most admired figures, its so-called role models, could easily qualify as sociopaths, the culture of narcissism having segued some years ago into the culture of total self-aggrandizement by whatever means present themselves, end quote. America loves a successful sociopath, and it hates an unsuccessful one. Andrew Cunanan shot himself in a houseboat in Miami, penniless, on July 23, 1997. The bullet, says Gary Indiana, bounced around in his skull and came to rest without damaging his face, contrary to reports. In fact, Andrew looked really pretty. So we've been totally overwhelmed by the success of the show so far. Thank you so much to all of you for listening, but a big special thank you goes out to all of our Patreon donors. Yeah, so far you've funded a second season and an ongoing series of special episodes, and you've really helped us to improve our audio quality. But there is a lot more that we'd like to do, uh, and we're not sponsored by anyone. We're not backed by any media company. We make the show for you, hopefully soon with more episodes, more interviews, and you let us know that you appreciate the show by giving what you can. So now's the time we awkwardly ask for money. So, to support the show, visit patreon.com slash badgazepod to sign up. We send you newsletters, zines, novels, and more, depending on your level of support. Anything you can give is really appreciated, and if money's tight, a good review on iTunes or on your podcast app really, really helps us find new audiences. Thanks. That's patreon.com slash badgazepod. Thanks. Well, I mean... um... A great story, well told. And, yeah, like, troubling and traumatic in its roots. All the way through, I felt being, I was sort of being led to that conclusion, which is that everyone was awful. Yeah. The, the sugar daddy, the um, the the people in the town I grew up who sort of were excluding Jews and black people, you know, like, he's one of a cut, he's... No, he's, he's one of a kind, meaning he is one of a kind of person, right? Yeah. And, you know, what? it's what happens when someone is raised to be um, a particular kind of rich asshole, and the only thing they don't have is the money. Yeah. I mean, if, if he had had, uh, you know, who knows, but my guess is that if he had had money, he never would have shot anybody. Yeah, if his dad was a successful stockbroker, he would have ended up. Yeah, if he had had money, he would have ended up, you know, we'd be seeing him now at gay bars. Yeah. Like, surrounded by a bevy of pretty boys. And we'd also be seeing Versace now at gay bars, surrounded by a bevy of pretty boys. And everyone would be there for the same reason. Not that pretty boys can't want to hang around with older men, but I'm talking about a very particular kind of uh, scenario there. Yeah. Yeah, and the last... um... The last quote could easily have been talking about Trump. The sociopath part? Yeah. Solid aggrandizement by any... Yeah, absolutely. For a second, I thought you were going to say he looked really pretty, which, no, God. But, um, yeah, the... the absolutely. And, and this particular version of celebrity culture that Trump comes from, that Vanity Fair of the 90s, you know, that that is the milieu of Versace. Those are the people that Versace dressed. How do you think the scandal fit into where gay men were in terms of their social recognition or social status in the end of the 90s? I mean, because you were coming out of the really um, the really terrible parts of the AIDS crisis where there was no treatment and there were a lot of men dying. And we're at the start of 
but it's before our current situation, which has quite a wide range, like a wide degree of social acceptance for certain types of gay men, um, which just didn't exist back in 99 or 97. Mm-hmm. Where do you think the portrayal of Cunanan at the time fits within what straight society thought about gay men at the time? Well, yeah, I mean, in the U.S. in 1997, we're in the very brief interennium between uh, people's images of gay men being either act-up protesters chaining themselves to fences or people dying horribly, and people's images of gay men being Will and Grace. So Will and Grace comes on U.S. TV in 1998, and that's a sitcom about kind of urban gay men um, in this very kind of buttoned-up homonormative way, but it does kind of expose a lot of people to like a gay person in my living room for the first time in a long time. And it's, it's a, it's a pioneering TV show in that way. The fact that Will and Grace is now back and still on network television is evidence of the like nightmare hangover of the long 1990s that we're all somehow still living through. Yeah. The nostalgia culture. Absolutely. But, but that's where we sort of are um, in 97. And so that I think gives you a sense of the social position of gay men. So we're at a point where, Versace can be mourned publicly as a gay man, and everyone knew. I mean, I don't think he ever had an official coming out, but the you know the story about the partner everyone knew. But also, it was possible for journalists to write about his killer and even about him in these like incredibly stereotyped ways. I mean, the way that this often got written about was because of this meeting at the nightclub. It was like Johnny Versace, great tortured artist with a secret a sad gay sex secret. And because of his sad gay sex secret where he had, you know, sex with people who weren't his boyfriend, um, he met this awful man who was from the sad gay sex secret world and then um, crimes happened. Sure, I mean, what do you expect if you're not monogamous? Yeah, exactly. Um, If you're not monogamous, one of your tricks from seven years ago will come up to your house and shoot you. Um, Apparently, uh, but that is, I think, kind of the way that the story got uh, told and thought about. And what's interesting to me about the Gary Indiana book, um, not to keep hopping on about it, but it is a very, very fine book, is how do you tell a story that really gets at the extent to which Cunanan and Versace are both a very particular kind of gay figure without blaming homosexuality for having murdered both of them somehow. You understand what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, because they because Cunanan is such a, like, archetypal gay figure. I mean, you meet a hundred people like that. Not murderers, but people with the kind of flexible relationships with the truth and flexible relationships with sugar daddies and... Yeah, when you mentioned the thing about popping back of, like, a sort of a new name or something, like, a number of people sprang <laughs> yeah, to mind. It's like... Yeah, like, oh, you know, she was living in a bathhouse in Los Angeles for a while, and now she runs a gallery in Paris and has a new (laughs) Facebook with a different last name, I think. Yeah. Oh, a new husband. Should we tell them? Oh, no, they'll figure it out. You know, it's... But then you never think that one of those people is actually going to, like, fully lose it. Um, And when you see what happens when someone does, it's so terrifying. And that's the thing. That's the Dory Prevent poem, right? The handwriting on the wall is mine. Yeah, but yeah, but yeah, exactly that. There, but for the grace of God, go I. Like, I don't know. A lot of a lot of people, me included, could see a point in a path in life where you could have easily slipped down into 
just you know embellishing your stories a bit too much and getting into that situation when you're surrounded um, by a culture that kind of um, uh, it, it doesn't value unless you have either the looks or the money. Yeah, and a culture where, especially for gay men, a certain kind of social achievement seems in the absence of other kinds of structures um, maybe to be like the only way to create meaning in your life. Does that make sense? Yeah. I'm sure not. that's not a gay issue. No, but I do think there's something about um, gay social scenes where a certain kind of clout or access or coolness, so much of which is determined by looks, um, comes to seem so important to people um, in this very... and in this way where there's nothing else. It, it can seem hard to maybe make connections to the world outside. I mean, I'm not trying to pathologize gay men uniquely. I think this is something that's been that's been kind mm. of inculcated in gay culture because you have... Um, a lot of people who are men, so they're supposed to work and compete with one another, but they're not men in the kind of social sense of being heads of household, at least not in the 80s and 90s. Yeah. And so therefore, it's like this incredibly competitive um, world where there's like, there isn't like a, there's no off-ramp from it, uh, where for straight men the family is built to kind of cushion straight men, provide them with this non-competitive space, and then through that it ends up like horribly abusing everyone else. But for straight men, the family serves that function, yeah. right? Whereas for gay men, they, there's, there is none of that. And so it's it ends up being this like other... I mean, obviously gay men have always had uh, their own kind of forms of sociality and chosen families, and a lot of that is really good and often much better than real families but you can see how someone would feel so driven by these things i think i certainly can yeah i mean not to the point where i'm gonna bash anyone's head in with a hammer 27 times yeah. probably but it can be expensive being gay it can be and it can be especially expensive being gay and getting older and not feeling like you don't have yeah. uh, you don't have a sort of way out so, um, okay. Andrew well, and on that note, yeah, good gay or bad gay? Bad gay. More interesting question. Johnny Versace, good gay or bad gay? Um, I don't know, because, because Andrew Cannon, yes, bad gay, but bad gay in a bad world, uh, and to a certain extent driven by these, these wild pressures around him. About about social standing, which is Johnny Versace's world as well. So, is, is Johnny Versace to be blamed for for succeeding in that world? Like, I don't know. I don't know enough about him, but has I can't, I, there's no examples that you said of, of a degree of like agency where Johnny Versace was actively cruel. I mean, I wouldn't. Yeah, I mean, certainly, first of all, just to say nobody deserves to be murdered in the street. Uh, nobody. No, of course. Uh, doesn't yeah. matter. Like, no, that's not, we're not, like, pronouncing judgment here. Um, yeah, I think Cunanan is a bad gay in a bad world, and uh, Versace is a, Versace is a somewhat less bad gay in a bad world, but with a hell of a lot more money. Um, and that smooths a lot of stuff out, doesn't it? Yeah. Stay clear of fashion, kids. 
It's bad. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Hugh Lemmy, or you can subscribe to my newsletter, which is at hugh.substack.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at Ben Writes Things. And you can follow the show at Bad Gays Pod. If you liked what you heard, please visit patreon.com slash badgazepod to donate, and or you can leave us a review on iTunes or your podcast provider to help us grow our audience. Thanks so much. See you next week. Bad. 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 Bad.